0: Hello and welcome to It Can Be Done a new podcast series about human rights law in action brought to you by the Migrants Law Project I'm Rebecca Omanira Oyukomi and I'm your host for this series We're going to take you right back to 2015 when more than 1 million people arrived in Europe seeking refuge We all know what happened next, it's really well documented The closed borders, heightened surveillance and security fences all over Europe Pushbacks at sea. Boats sinking in the Mediterranean. But what's less familiar are the laws governing the movement of people through Europe and what happens when those laws fail. When, despite existing legal routes to safety, refugees are packed into undersized rubber dinghies and pushed out to sea. When a child wedges themselves into the wheel arch of a 30-ton lorry. When parents carry their children across entire countries, hoping that the next one might be better. In this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a group of people. Lawyers, doctors, community organisers, refugees, interpreters all people who pulled their skills to challenge a system that wasn't working they were gathered together by the migrants law project and they spotted an injustice and worked together across borders to challenge it using the law to come up with a solution and this is not just a story about europe's refugee crisis it's about human rights and it's about using the law creatively and it's about working together to show what can be done
1: My name is Kutaiba, I'm from Syria My date of birth, 1st of January 1999 I have four brothers and two sisters
0: Kutaiba was 12 when the Syrian civil war upended his life Before the war, life was ordinary He loved school and his friends and playing solhajan A sport which is sort of like basketball Which he was really good at He even dreamed that one day he might play professionally He was top of his district, he told me but the protests escalated. President Bashar al-Assad began a brutal crackdown and Kataiba's childhood idol was shattered. Several of his friends were killed when bombs fell in their hometown. One friend survived an attack but lost both his eyes. Meanwhile, Katiba's large family scattered and in 2014, mum, dad, Katiba, and his two brothers travelled to Jordan. One of Katiba's older brothers, then a brilliant young university student in his early 20s became really unwell and needed extra care. The family wanted him to join a sister who was living in England with her family at the time and there was an older brother living in north of England too and so it fell to Kataiba who was then 15 to get him, his brother, his brother to safety in the UK. The brothers travelled on foot from Turkey to Greece going from country to country until finally after a traumatic, terrifying journey, they arrived in Cali. The Tiber was just a short train ride from the UK where his brother and sister lived. His journey would soon be over. First he needed to find the hotel he'd been told about. He didn't have an address, just a name.
1: Once I arrived in Cali, about Cali, a Yeah, people were talking at. Uh, and telling uh, like a story saying that once you arrived in Calais, there is a hotel called A Jungle.
0: That's Tariq. He's interpreting for a Kataiba who speaks English but wants to tell his story in Arabic.
1: I was asking people, Sudanese, there, were there were Sudanese, Afghanians, were and Kurds. Yeah, from different nationalities. Yeah. And they are saying, jungle, jungle, this way, this way. I went there and I saw tents.
0: How to describe the jungle in 2015? Well, it's not a hotel for a start. It's mud, it's tents, just a few acres of barren land, home to thousands of people sleeping in tents and whatever they could find to keep themselves warm at night. And there, at that time, there weren't that many provisions. There was not even any sanitation. But there was hope, and if you climbed a small hill on the edge of the camp, went right to the very top, you could just see the white cliffs of Dover. A sliver of sea, a blurred, heavily police border between France and the UK. When Kataiba arrived in Calais, he went to meet a cousin of his who was already in the
1: jungle. Uh, good I told him this is a hotel they call it jungle He said yes this is a hotel they call it the jungle I told him how we can cross to the UK He told me that tonight we will book a train ticket and we will go <laughs> and yes, actually, we went to the train. But not through a ticket or to buy a ticket. Yeah, we have to uh, uh, jump over the high fence. See, you jumped. I jumped. <laughs>
0: Obviously, we've invested in the security fence at Calais and now the security fence at Coquel, where the channel tunnel entrance is on the French side. The French are sending an extra
1: 120 police. And on the third and the fourth month, I was in the tent and I could not even leave the tent. Because the police uh, arrested me and they beat me. The whole idea of having our border controls on the French
0: side of the Channel—that
1: is actually incredibly. And they hit me on my uh, leg, and up until now, I've got difficulties walking. And the silly thing is after they beat me up themselves, they treated me. Look, this is very testing, I accept that, because you've
0: got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, seeking a better life, wanting to come to Britain because Britain has got jobs, it's got a growing economy, it's an incredible place to live, but we need to protect our borders by working... I
2: was personally offended by a very... um, Dehumanising um, description of of a group of people, which was picked up, and there was there seemed very little challenge to uh, that comment. I mean, there were sort of the what they would call the usual suspects, you know, who who would be, but there was there was no sense of outrage that anyone could um, describe a group of people in that way. That's Oglanı. And the comments
0: she's reacting to were made by David Cameron. Remember him? He was the Prime Minister for a while. Anyway, let's pause Katiba's story for now. To understand what happens to him next, you really need to know more about the group he was part of. The people who he came to trust, the people pushing back against politicians like David Cameron, who pulled money into fences and talked about security at borders, all the while refugees like Kataiba and his brother fled. Sonal was crucial to bringing that group together. It was something she'd done many, many times before in her work as an immigration solicitor, whether it was working for the rights of Iraqi refugees in the early 2000s or refugees from Zimbabwe later on in that decade. And in 2010, the government cut the legal aid budget, and that made it even more difficult for Sonal and others to do this type of work. And amid all these dramatic cuts, Sonal set up the Migrants Law Project,
2: so we thought that there was scope to create a small project to focus on those types of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if, even by 2010, it was clear that um, cuts in legal aid were approaching so that there were going to be fewer and fewer um, good quality legal representatives that people would be able to access um, Uh, publicly funded advice from. So what exactly is the Migrants Law Project? The Migrants Law Project is a legal and public legal education uh, project. And um, we work in a a model that isn't traditional. What we do or try and do is we work um, with a lot of um, NGOs whose service users are migrants and asylum seekers on the basis that often... um, There are recurring problems, so there there may be the one client you see at an advice centre and you resolve their problem, and then suddenly you find that actually there are 10 people with the same problem, and so that indicates that there is a wider problem within the system. That summer, the summer that David Cameron talked about swarms,
0: the summer Katiba arrived in Calais, the summer of fences and queues at borders. Sonal couldn't help but wonder about the possibility of a legal solution. But at first, she just wanted to do something practical.
2: She just wanted to help. There's a very, really lovely woman who worked as a researcher, that she is a researcher by profession, um, and she worked with various NGOs here. Um, Her name's Natasha Sangaridis, and she she, um, was then living in Greece... Uh, on Lesvos and um, she had uh, set up a, a fundraising page uh, with a plea um, for anyone who had money, because she, there were the the people coming by boats from Turkey onto Lesbos had absolutely nothing. There was no water. There was nothing for them, and she described herself was heartbroken and wanted to see if she could just raise some money to just for the very very basics um so you know you gave some money but i kind of it started think me thinking about what can i do but we were really keen to see if there was anything we could do as english lawyers and um, calais seemed to be the place to kind of try and find out if there was anything we could do well i've been working with
3: sonal who um, is the driving force behind the migrant law project she set it up. Um, I've been working with her since about 2003.
0: That's Charlotte Kilroy, a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers in London. Like Sonal, Charlotte had an interest in using the law to get at the root cause of social problems.
3: It's all about unblocking things. If you have a systemic problem, um, that indicates that ordinary... Roots, you know, individuals bringing individual challenges and not solving it. Mm. And so you have to examine why that is mm. and work out um, how to unblock.
0: Around this time, Charlotte and Sonal had just emerged from an intense period of work. They'd spent two years on a legal challenge to the government's practice of detaining people in immigration detention centres while they assessed their asylum
3: claims. At that time, as you will remember, it was the height of the refugee crisis and in particular Hungary had decided to uh, stop uh, migrants from continuing onwards in their journey. So until that stage there had been a, a relatively open movement from Greece um, right through um, the European Union and people were able to uh, Travel through you know, ultimately stopping usually in calais, but um then um, the Hungarian president Orban um, made his decision to block that passage, and the result was all were all these images at um, on our screens of refugees you know stranded in kaleti station, and it was such an extraordinary um Thing to witness and to know that this was happening in the heart of Europe. We think there are something like two or three thousand refugees here. You can see them down in the concourse of Calais railway station. It's raining pretty hard this morning, so uh, they've been taking shelter. A lot of them have been sleeping here. And having watched it on the, on our the screens, I think I. I took a decision one day in the beginning of September to go out, just fly out to Hungary to look at it, to see if there was anything that, you know, I could think of that could be done. Also, I just felt I I needed to see something like this, knowing as I was feeling very strongly that this was something that we shouldn't be witnessing in Europe By the time I got there, um, Olban had decided to uh, relax the restriction on onward movements, so there was no longer um, a, a, a complete block, but there were still um, hundreds, thousands of people there uh, trying to get on trains, and what was happening is that special trains were being laid on, um, which sort of would stop at the border of each country. Charlotte quickly
0: realised there wasn't much she could do as a British lawyer, but she could bear witness. So she jumped onto one of the packed trains carrying refugees across the
3: continent. I wasn't there to ask questions. I wasn't wasn't a journalist. I I didn't want to pry. I just wanted to, to be there. In the train, the Austrian train, that was going through into past Salzburg, Vienna... And then ultimately into Germany, and stopped we stopped in Munich. So it probably took about 10 hours in the end. Um, uh, in that Austrian um, train, I was in a carriage. I ended up, I think I walked through a few times, but I came across, perhaps decided to sit next to a woman who was from, she was, as far as I could tell, Kurdish from Iraq. And um She had six children under the age of ten with her. Something made Charlotte stay with the family. They were all sleeping on the floor and some of them had no shoes um, but they were, you know, completely conked out on the floor. And she appeared to be... It wasn't clear who was with her. There seemed to be a young man with her and I couldn't work out what his role was but the image was just so extraordinary these six children, smaller ones on the floor I think one of the older ones was on, sleeping on her lap and on the seat next to her dirty and badly clothed and her not speaking a word of anything and not really appearing to be fully in charge of her destiny so I felt that they were very vulnerable and I just wanted to stay with them so I ended up staying with them even though I couldn't talk to her at all and stayed with her at Munich In Munich, they were met by border guards. The refugees were taken to a large hangar. I was worried about her and I wanted to see what happened, so I went into the hangar with them all and stayed there for another couple of hours as as people were processed and started to be sent off to, I assume, detention centres or immigration Mm centres, but anyway, accommodation of a certain type. But I stayed with her until the end, um... Until she was put on the on the bus with her children. But when I got back, I thought to myself, "Well, I think I sent a couple of emails to a few human rights organisations in Hungary." But I basically realised that there was just nothing I could do. So I thought to myself, "Well, hang on, isn't there a there, there is something closer to home? It's not actually in England, but it's on our border." Um, that is equally disgusting. Um, you know, we, we, we yes, we're not blocking them in our capital city as they are in Hungary, but we are blocking them at a border and doing nothing to assist. And I had seen all these images of that everyone had seen by then of young men hooded, you know, boarding trains and that heard the rhetoric um, that was pervasive at that time that they just wanted to come here to claim benefits or, you know, when they, there was violence involved. And I knew from my experience that it was very, very unlikely that people would put themselves at that kind of risk unless they had a reason for coming. Charlotte decided she would go to
0: Calais just to see and perhaps work out whether there was anything that she could do or that anything that could be done legally to help the people who were stuck there.
3: Um, And I called Sonal and said, look, I'm thinking of doing this. Um, You know, would you be willing to come? And she said, yes.
2: 48 hours later. Charlotte and I caught the train from St Pancras on the Thursday morning, 5 to 7, off we went. And it was a really cold September day, late September
0: Next time on It Can Be Done, Kataiba and the other refugee children meet the lawyers, but will they trust them? Meanwhile, more members of our team come to Calais.
2: All
3: that summer of 2015, I mean, if I think back, really, the, the government had been laying the foundations for their immigration bill. So their immigration bill was coming in the autumn of 15 and they spent all summer whipping up terrible fear and anxiety about Calais. I basically thought we have to we have to do something about Calais. It's not it's not enough to just sit on the sides on this one.
1: Until I arrived. The camp. The jungle. It's not the camp. I was shocked. <laughs> Where am I? Where? For God's sake, I wasn't looking for this place. But anyway...
2: I think for me, uh, how it starts really, uh, is uh, when I discover uh, in the media the picture of the small boy uh, who, who died uh, in the sea in Greece trying to, to cross. Um, in order to reach uh, the Europe, the European Union. Um, he was from Syria, and I had the chance to travel to Syria a few years before, um, and I felt uh, frustrated uh, because of the situation in Syria. I didn't know how to help, what I could do, um, because I, I just loved so much this country. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to our show. Find out more about the Migrants Law Project at www.themigrantslawproject.org. Our theme tune, Kelelo, is by Stoneflowers, a refugee torture survivor collective. Follow the links in the podcast description page to support their work. Follow me at Rebecca underscore Omanera for updates on new episodes. See you next time.